trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us as we revel in wrong think. And our show is brought to you by great sponsors like GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and HSLAmmo.com. In the uh, battle for reality, I like to uh, turn to skilled thinkers, tacticians, if you will, like my friend Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos. Eric, how are you doing today? Well, I'm pretty good. I'm rooting around in my closet for my bell-bottom corduroy pants because we may be going back to the 70s soon. Uh, I saw, you know, I saw the article that you had posted recently about uh, a return to one of the, the least enjoyed aspects of the 70s. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, those of us who can recall the, the 70s will remember that there was an energy crisis then, too, that was just as artificial as the one now. And uh, one of the ways that our, our wonderful friends in government decided to cope with that was not to make energy more affordable by uh, expanding uh, drilling and pipelines and all of those kinds of things, but rather we're going to drive 55 on the highways because, you know, that way if you drive slower, you'll use less gas. 55, and stay alive. Remember that? <laughs> oh, uh, yes. And then very quickly, very quickly, that went into that morphed from being a fuel-saving thing to a safety thing. And so for the next 20 years, from roughly 1974 to 1995, uh, if you drove 56 miles an hour on an interstate highway that was designed in the 50s for average road speeds of 70 to 75 miles an hour, which had been legal speeds before, uh, you were guilty of unsafe driving and speeding. And millions of Americans got serially mulcted for 20 years uh, in the form of these speeding tickets. And then, of course, those tickets were used by the insurance companies to jack up your premiums. So we all suffered for that for a, a generation, 20 years. And now they're talking about doing it again and double plus good. Not just that, they're talking about even odd days of driving, for example, oh um, restricting when people can buy gas and all sorts of things of that nature. So look out, as OJ used to say, uh, it, it may be coming. Wow. Okay. I guess I better start looking for some hash jeans and, and some platform <laughs> shoes as well. Man, I I remember, you know, when the speed limit reluctantly was raised to 65, and then, mm -hmm. you know, since then has come back to a more sane um, 80 miles an hour, mm -hmm. at least out west. But uh, mm -hmm. those were those were pretty interesting times. And like you say, it, it, it increased your chances of interaction with the state and the extractive class, you know, who will, will write out those traffic tickets. You know, it, 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 it boosted your chances of being stopped so much more. Mm -hmm. Not a good thing. No, there are a lot of interesting facets to this, too. Uh, one of the uh, one of the responses to the, the the original fuel crisis was to put overdrive gearing in in cars. So now, fast forward to our era, most new cars come with a transmission, whether it's a manual or an automatic, uh, that has multiple overdrive gearings. Uh, some of the automatics have ten speeds now, and the top three gears in that are overdrive, and they're designed to cut engine RPM at today's highway speeds, which are now about 70, 75 miles an hour on the East Coast, and you know, eighty in your neck of the woods. Well, if we kick down the speed limit at 55 miles an hour, these poor cars are probably going to start lugging, and they're going to going to have problems even maintaining the pace. Uh, leaving aside the horror of, as Sammy Hagar used to say, what used to take two hours now takes all day. <laughs> yep. 
Well, and, and I remember very well, you know, the safety lecture that went along. That's why I say drive, you know, mm-hmm. stay alive, drive 55. Um, you know, you point out in your article, and I've, I've seen you address this numerous times over the years, mm-hmm. that change from 70 to 75 miles an hour to 55 miles an hour was never mm-hmm. in the interest of safety, even though it was sold to the public right. on, well, this will keep you safer. Yep. Yeah. Well, in fact, it was arguably unsafe because, again, the, the interstate highway system was designed in the 50s. So I, I emphasize that to emphasize the fact that it assumed the cars of the 1950s for average travel speeds in the 70 to 75 mile an hour range. And that's what the speed limits were until 1974. And then they knocked it back to this ridiculous 55. And, of course, the cars at that time even uh, were meant to operate at considerably higher speeds. So uh, you know, it was difficult to drive that slow. Sammy Hagar was actually onto something. And here we are today where uh, any modern car uh, is probably as safe in terms of its ability to, to, to be controllable at 80 or 90 miles an hour than the cars of the 50s were at 55 miles an hour. And it's very frustrating to drivers to try to drive at these artificially low speeds. It frustrates people. It makes them tense. It makes them uh, probably distracted because you're so bored. What else is there to do but fiddle with your cell phone or, or see what's on the radio? And then, boom, you get into a wreck as a result of that. So there has never been any data to support that artificially lowering speed limits as these, these neurotic minis, as I, I often call them, insist is going to save any lives. So, you know, their argument ultimately comes down to, well, let's just have a speed limit of zero. Let's all just stand in place, and then we'll save a lot of lives. Wow. Now, will it actually conserve gas? Are we going to be swimming in gasoline if people were to slow down to 55, or is that just a pipe dream as well? Well, you know, given the, the, the way modern cars are designed with their, again, multiple overdrive transmission, it's hard to know. I don't know whether there would be because they're, they're, they're designed now to, to get into those higher overdrive gears to cut the engine RPM to reduce uh, fuel consumption. And that was all predicated on highway speeds in the 70 to 75 mile an hour range. So if you kick that back down to 55, it might turn out that they're even less efficient than they were before. It's very hard to to know. Uh, But what we can know, I think, is the broader philosophical principle, which is, wait a minute, I paid for that gas. I put it in my car. and Haven't I got the right to use it as I want to use it? And if I burn it up quickly, well, I paid for it. And that means I've got to buy more gas, right? You know, you're not harming anybody else by using the gas that you paid for. You know, how is it that we suddenly have like this community interest in gas when it's the individual who pays for it? Well, you know, to take Pete Buttigieg's advice, it's, you know, just buy an electric car and you won't have to worry about all that. Oops. What was that picture I saw on Twitter this morning? Oh, it was a long line of electric cars all waiting their turn so they could sit there for, what, 20, 30 minutes trying to get a quick charge? Yeah. I mean, it's, you think well, gas yeah. lines were bad? Those charging lines were ridiculous. Sure. And I, I, I added something to this little debate uh, a couple of hours ago. I posted an article about what may kill the electric car this time around. It wasn't GM the first time around. Uh, and that is the, uh, the cost of the electric car, which is already high. You know, that's been a problem even before Biden came into Washington. But now we've got a real inflation rate of about 15%. And uh, I was reading some financial analysis the other day that said that for the average American, that means that they've spent roughly $5,000 more uh, in terms of the buying power of their money that's been lost. So if you look at it in a certain way, what that means is that the cost of the electric car, not the sticker, but what you're actually able to pay for it because you don't have the same amount of money. Your money, The buying power of your money is less, has gone down. So the cost of this electric car has gone up even more. 
Now, the way the industry has tried to cope with the high price of vehicles generally, as you know, is through debt financing. You know, you take out a six or seven or an eight-year loan on a car now. That's pretty routine. And that has helped to make vehicles accessible to people who otherwise might not be able to afford them. But there's an asterisk there, and it is the interest rates. Interest rates have been low for years now. So the cost of money has been low, and that has kept the payments low. But interest rates are going up again. So that means your monthly payment is going to go up again. So now you've got this problem, a big problem, particularly for these electric cars. It's more difficult for the average person right now to go out and buy a $20,000 Corolla. How much more difficult is it for the average person to go out and buy a forty dollars or $50,000 electric car? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and... All right. Uh, you, you above all people, Eric, have probably convinced me that uh, as, as you know, uh, novelty as it would be to have an electric car, I want to, I want to stick with my, my gas guzzler and I'm willing to pay the extra price in fuel just to know that I can gas up and be on my way as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's, you know, that's one of the practicality issues that we uh, should talk about with electric cars. But there's also another issue, and it is that uh, no matter what you think about the merits of the electric car, it is fundamentally an indulgence in the sense that you're paying a premium for something that you don't need but that you want. I use the example of replacing the windows in your house. You maybe have some cloudy, dingy windows. You, you think they don't look so great. So you've got some money, and you want to go out and buy some nice Anderson triple-pane casement windows, right? And that's great if you can afford to go out and buy the Anderson casement windows. But if you can't, you're going to just deal with the windows you've got, Right. Absolutely. And that's the same thing with these electric cars. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to talk about how, how green they are and how quick they are and all these other things. But at the end of the day, if you simply can't make the monthly payment, it's, it's academic and pointless. Well, and, and cars like the Tesla, which, you know, I've, I've ridden in one and I, I get why people like them. They are, yeah. they're, they're quite impressive. But there's also the idea, and as someone had floated, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, why don't we just have uh, Tesla shut off uh, all the, you know, the Ukraine, the uh, Russian Teslas, you Teslas know. in Russia, right? I mean, you know, what? I caught that story too, and it went down the memory hole very fast. And I wish I copied it because I think it's something that people should really keep in the back of their minds and think about. Uh, and I've been talking about this for years. For years, uh, it's electric cars, particularly Teslas, but I think it applies to all of them. They can be shut off at the whim of Elon Musk or whoever it is that controls the telemetry, you know, the, the real-time Wi-Fi connected. Uh, it's like your phone. You know, your phone gets updates whether you want them or not. Well, that's how Tesla's work. And uh, if, if Elon Musk wants to shut down what is allegedly your car, he can. That's, that's a scary thing to me. Let's come back to this topic here in just a few moments. Again, Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is my guest. I've got a link to his website on the, on the BrianHydeShow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, now we're talking a mixture of two things here. We're talking about uh, your liberty as well as cars. And Eric, you had a recent article about the off-grid car, and it really grabbed mm-hmm. my attention. Let's let's talk a little bit about what you mean by an off-grid car. Yeah, uh, essentially it means vehicles that were made before cars became electronic cars. You know, we were talking earlier about electric cars, but all modern cars are also electronic. They've got multiple computers and many of them are connected just like the Teslas. And, uh, you know, that, that, that makes a person like me and probably like you and people who are listening a little bit leery 
of what might be uh, done to these vehicles in the event that we have another lockdown, let's say, or uh, you are uh, identified as a wrong thinkful person. I think there is a growing movement by a lot of people to have a vehicle that is totally under their own control that can't be jiggered with by any uh, external source. And so that, that's what I meant by the off-grid car. Older cars, generally speaking, vehicles made before about the early 1980s. Of course, that's a long time ago. You know, you and I are starting to ease, I guess. And, you know, we can remember that era and the cars of that era. But I got to thinking that a lot of the, the younger people, millennials in particular, have no experience with these cars at all. And while they may be interested in them, they may not know enough about them. So I thought I'd put together a little article that mentions some of the things that people who are interested in those old cars might want to know about. So let's talk about some of the models of off-grid cars that you would say uh, might be a good bet for someone who's inclined to learn how to wrench on their own vehicle and and, and do some of their own work, but uh, they tend to have some some staying power. What, What are some of the models out there that might be worth consideration? Well, you know, that ranges, the, there's, there's a whole gamut there, and a lot of it depends on what you particularly need. Some people might do really well with, like, an old Volkswagen Beetle, which is as simple a vehicle as it gets, unless you went back a lot farther to something like a Model T. Uh, it's a car that almost anybody who can fix a, a Briggs & Stratton push mower can fix. But uh, it can't pull a whole lot, doesn't have four-wheel drive, so you might want to get something maybe like a, an old pickup or an old SUV, um, something like that that's, that's more versatile and usable. Or maybe a big sedan from the 70s, even, that can haul your family around. And since most of those vehicles did have V8s and body-on-frame construction like trucks, they actually can pull a trailer, you know, which is something a lot of new cars cannot do. Also, you know, it's nothing. there's nothing wrong with going up a little bit newer to vehicles that, while they have a computer to control the fuel injection, they don't have computers that control the rest of the vehicle. You and I have talked about uh, some recent acquisitions that people in our circle have made. And a good example of that would be something like, a, you know, an old uh, uh, Chevy, um, Chevy Suburban, uh, a, a Toyota 4Runner, Tacoma, anything like that that was made in the 90s, the early 2000s, which does have the computer and fuel injection, but it hasn't got all of this, this creepy connected technology that I think people are becoming uh, increasingly leery about. Now, what are some of the considerations when it comes to maintaining them? I mean, you mentioned that uh, those older engines – uh, were designed uh, at a time that's much different from, from the way engines are designed today, and even the fuel that was used back then. I mean, come on, there was a time when we had leaded fuel. Uh, what are some of the things we have to think about in terms of making sure they keep running reliably? Yeah, well, back in the day, gasoline was still gasoline. You know, it wasn't 10% ethanol, which almost all of the gas that is available today at the pump is. So if you have one of these vehicles that was made back in the day, you're probably going to have to make some minor. These are easy. These are minor. Uh, adjustments to the fuel delivery system, um, such as rejetting the carburetor. There's a term that people might want to look up if they're not familiar with it. It's pretty straightforward. And anybody who can turn a wrench can do this if they're careful and follow the manual. Also, you want to replace things like rubber fuel lines uh, if they're still original. Now, you know, by this time, a lot of vehicles from that era have been updated. And most of the stuff that you would buy at a Napa or any other auto parts store is going to be ethanol compatible. But you want to be sure because the old rubber wasn't, and ethanol will eat right through that stuff. Another thing, the gas tank. Back in the day, most vehicles had steel tanks. Ethanol is corrosive. It attracts water. Water results in rust. You don't want the inside of your your tank and your fuel lines rusting. So if you get one of these older vehicles, it might be a good idea to look into getting a replacement stainless steel tank. I've done that with my old Firebird, and that solves that problem. Some of these older vehicles also need specific oil because of the way their valve trains were designed. They had what are called flat tappet camshafts, and that's been something that 
uh, has been out of circulation since about the mid-1980s. So you have to have oil that has a particular additive. It's called VDDP, and it basically means zinc and manganese. And that's available. It's just not available generally at your local Napa or, or uh, other auto parts store. You have to get it online. Uh, you can get a bottle of additive that you can add to store-bought oils, or you can buy oil that already has it in it. I use Amsoil, by the way, in, in my old Firebird. So it's just a few little things like that, and I can get into more about that in the article that's on the site. Okay, now with that, I'm going to just assume that there's there's probably a great opportunity for someone to to learn how to change their own oil if they don't do it already. I mean, mm-hmm. instead of outsourcing this to Jiffy Lube or you know some other place, uh, what are the advantages of being able to change your own oil? Well, they're the same advantages that come along with raising your own food, right? You 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 know you get a feeling of empowerment that's psychologically valuable, but in addition to that, you are now independent. You're no longer dependent on. Uh, some kind of a service station to do these things for you. And the more that you can do, the less you have to pay other people to do them for you. It's really gratifying to me to develop these skills. It's not just cars. You know, I'm learning about gardening. I've been learning about raising uh, livestock, poultry, and things of that nature. And, you know, I just feel I feel better all the time the more that I know about it and the more I feel confident to do these things for myself. And, you know, talking to young people today in particular, I think a lot of them feel really alienated because of the way – the system that we have now uh, just renders people essentially specialists. They're good at one thing, but they're helpless when it comes to everything else. And they, they have to depend on experts or specialists in other areas. Whereas, you know, our, our parents and grandparents, they knew a lot about a, a lot of things. And so they were a lot more self-sufficient than people are today in general. Now, I got to tell you, I take this advice to heart and I am a person who uh, I'm not handy. I am not mechanically inclined. But uh, because of our conversations and because of, you know, the example that others around me have said, I'm getting better at, uh, you know, if I have to do, you know, light maintenance on my vehicles, I'm willing to dive in and I'm willing to make the mistakes. And and once you know you can do something, your confidence builds, you know, almost exponentially with, okay, it's okay to, to dive in and try. Yeah. It feels really good. And something uh, for people listening who may not be aware of this, one of the nice things about working on these off-grid older vehicles is because they're purely mechanical for the most part, you can see and touch the parts. And that, at least in my own experience, has made understanding how things work a lot more comprehensible than electronic stuff, which obviously is invisible. You know, you're you're looking at a code reader, you can't see the current flowing, and it's, it's very mysterious. Whereas, you know, with a choke, setting a choke on a carburetor, you can actually see uh, the choke flap come on. You can see how the lever actuates it. And, you know, you can play around with it, manipulate it, and that helps you to understand how it works. Well, I I foresee this kind of self-sufficiency paying off very, very big dividends in the days ahead. And I'm not, you know, pretending an apocalypse or anything. I'm just saying uh, things are tight right now. Supply chains are, mm-hmm. are, you know, under duress and under distress. Uh, it would be a good thing to start acquiring these skills if you haven't already. It's a good thing, you know, whether we have the apocalypse or not, I think. I think getting back to the way Americans once were, which was generally speaking, a more self-sufficient people than they are today. Uh, I think that that was a very healthy thing society when, you know, kids grew up and, and their dad knew how to fix a car, knew how to change a tire, knew how to change the oil, and would show the kid how to do it. You know, and then you talk about just household skills, you know, framing a wall, let's say, uh, laying some brick raising animals, raising vegetables, all of these things empower the individual. And I think uh, we're down to the health, not just of the family, but of communities and then the society more broadly. 
Yep. And and we uh, we should also keep in mind that uh, government will always be there to offer a solution, but that solution will <laughs> always come at a corresponding cost to your individual liberty. Sure, exactly. If you think that you are better informed about your own life, why would you want to uh, offload uh, responsibility for your life to people who have no idea who you are, what your circumstance is, and give you a generic one-size-fits-all uh, solution that may fit very poorly and cost you a whole lot, too? Okay, got about 30 seconds left here. Eric, tell people where to find your website. Sure, it's epautos.com. I like to call it the web's best libertarian gearhead site. And by the way, uh, we recently opened a little uh, a little venue where people, if they want to get merchandise related to the store, including fun coffee cups and things like that, you can find that on the right-hand side of the page now. Nice. I, You know, I'm going to have to have to go take a look actually here in just a few moments. Eric, thanks so much for being my guest. Let's get together next week, shall we? Will do. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a moment here to thank the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, for being a sponsor of this program. This is the team that I would turn to if I were looking to get a home loan and get it quickly. First of all, because we're in a very competitive real estate market. Secondly, because I don't know if you've noticed, but interest rates are poised to head back up. So if you want to get the home of your dreams, you don't have time to dilly-dally along. You've got to, you got to make it happen quickly. This is why I would go to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather has decades of experience. She knows what the lenders need. She knows what the borrowers need. She knows how to make it happen. And she has a company that has the clout to make it happen. Now, there are a couple of ways you can get in touch with her. I would recommend click the email link that I provide in my show notes in the sponsors section. That's uh, that's one way to reach her. You can also call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I've become kind of a believer here of late that it's really important that we pay attention to what we feed our minds. And this is kind of a tough one for me because, look, I, I want to be aware. I want to I want to speak to you as a friend and, and tell you, you know, sometimes it's bad news, but sometimes it, I need to point out things that, uh, that are concerning, things that I, I believe portend risk or danger, but I want to do it in a way that doesn't just feed your fears or have you constantly wandering around in a state of, of, you know, concern or even paranoia over, you know, what's coming next, which is hard to do. I mean, when you consider the totality of what's going on around us, there's a lot of crazy, scary stuff. And it all seems to be just teetering right there on the brink of, ooh, this, this could not only get worse, but it could get a lot worse. So how do you strike that balance between, you know, knowing what's going on and, and not being consumed by what's going on? As, as my friend Kurt Mercadante puts it, not marinating in it. Well, I'm still working that out for myself, but I've got some really great advice to share with you about what constitutes fuel for healthy souls. This is from Paul Rosenberg from his freemansperspective.com website. He says, we all need certain inputs if we're to be deeply healthy if we're to have healthy souls. But he says, for children, this is even more important 
Because if they get the right fuel for their souls, they'll build not just better hearts and minds, but better expectations of life, which will guide them positively and may guide their families for generations. So he says, I'm going to give you today a brief list of specific types of fuel for healthy souls. And he says, I'm adapting them from the work of Abraham Maslow, who studied the healthiest people he could find, hoping to determine what sorts of things made them that way. And these are the things that healthy, sex, self, thank you, Dr. Freud, self-actualizing people need if we can furnish them to our children as they develop. Well, Paul Rosenberg says, then we'll be directly improving them, our extended families, and for that nature, the, the broader world. Now, he says, please understand, if we do this well, the effects we generate will carry not just through our families, but through the world as a whole. And for as long as the human species may endure, so the consequences of this work, that is to say, are permanent. So this is a list, again, of fuel for healthy souls. These are the things that we should and, and must focus on if we want to keep that health. Truth and not dishonesty. Truth allows our inner processes to work smoothly, while dishonesty complicates them and clogs them. Truth in the home allows children to develop naturally and not burden their minds with the development of predator-prey routines. If they become constantly on guard against being deceived, hardening themselves because deception could slap them at any time, their minds, even their physical brains, will function much differently and much worse. Now, they may be able to pull themselves out of it when older, but not without a lot of luck and or work. Second on that list, goodness rather than evil. As with the section above, dealing with goodness is far more efficient and is far more conducive to health and progress. Now, there is evil in this world, but our internal foundation should not be tainted with it. Dealing with evil should be a set of add-on skills, not foundational skills. That's a really interesting take. How about this one? Number three, beauty rather than ugliness. Children and adults, too, should be nourished with beauty and truth, not filled with the ugly and the vulgar. These things divert our development. Dark calls to the dark and builds the dark. But on the other hand, good calls to the good and builds the good. Number four, wholeness and internal harmony rather than a splintered and discordant interior universe. Okay, that's a lot to, to unpack. So here's what he means. We are organisms, not machines. And when an organism has an internal harmony, it can defend itself against all sorts of external assaults. Its fundamental operating pattern will be health, and the organism will adapt to disease or of whatever type, eliminating it quite well in the majority of cases. Next on the list is aliveness rather than mechanization. Paul Rosenberg says, as above, we are organisms, which is far better than being mechanisms. Legalistic and mechanical standards, if they're imposed upon an organism, generate entropy in that organism, and the organism may not be able to overcome it. When someone says, I feel like a number, I feel like I'm being treated like, you know, human cattle, the airport would be a good example of this. Line up here, stand there, have this ready, pull your mask down, whatever. Moo. I only say this because I've been working with cattle for the last few days, and <laughs> holy cow, it's, it's, it's as bad as an airport experience. Next on the list, uniqueness, not uniformity. Paul Rosenberg says, Conformity is not only an imposition of mechanization upon an organism, but a fundamental insult to a self-referential being. It's anti-self, anti-soul, 
and anti-life. Did you hear that? Conformity is anti-self, anti-soul, and anti-life. So be a proud nonconformist. And <clears throat> he says, considering the hormonal and neurological effects it has, in, it has inside self-referential humans, you could fairly call it a chemical weapon. Next, he says, completeness rather than fractured beings. Healthy souls prefer completeness because they can use such things and learn from such things. Now, completeness may not always be available, but Paul Rosenberg says it should be grasped when it is. Fractured and discordant inputs to minds, especially young minds, generate static and blockages, and they're to be avoided, regardless that many people see them as fine or normal. I like this next one, simplicity rather than complexity, for the same reasons as above. But he says, note that the arrangement of affairs in the world move toward increasing complexity. And in other words, they operate by an opposing principle to the principles of a healthy soul. And here we find another principle, that our own health must be preferred to the demands of a poorly developed and self-contradictory world. Next, he talks about richness, not environmental impoverishment or sameness. We are multicolor beings, not monochrome beings. We're able to operate in many different environments to interact beneficially in radically different situations and with people of widely differing backgrounds. Moreover, he says this is healthy for us. And exercise is to, to the, as exercise is to the body, richness of environment is to our souls. Anybody who's traveled will back him up on this. Next, playfulness rather than drudgery. Now, Paul Rosenberg says fun is frequently underrated. A good deal of that comes from people passing off their vices as fun. But fun proper is a virtue rather than a vice. Fun engages us very broadly and trains us in a harmonious effort toward a beneficial goal. Drudgery is very much the opposite. It tends to degrade self-value. So there's virtue in accepting drudgery for a valuable end, like a better life for our children. But drudgery itself has no virtue and is to be avoided. And finally, self-sufficiency, not dependency. Humans, to function at their full or anywhere near it, need to know that they are capable beings. They need to know that they are a net positive in the universe. And that's why even significantly damaged people can be helped by doing things for people more damaged than themselves. By it, they see and know that they are creating benefit and that they deserve the help that they've been given by others. Kind of a nice way of saying pay it along or pay it forward. Dependency is a poison, a wound upon the human soul. And Paul Rosenberg says, certainly we've all needed a hand at some point in our lives, but our normal condition has to be self-sufficiency. Even children born into complete dependence need to grow out of it earlier rather than later. He also talks a little bit about meaningfulness rather than arbitrariness. In other words, you need to, there should be some meaning behind what you do. But here's the bottom line. Healthful development seems to come from human interaction, and that means that conveniences, mostly electronic these days, aren't a suitable replacement for it. Now, he says, I'm not saying that anything electronic or convenient is bad, but he says, I am saying that we shouldn't imagine that our kids will gain their development that way, or even that it'll just happen somehow. He says, I understand the overburdened and the burned out parent. I've been that parent more than once, but if we can't spend more energy that particular day... We have to remember that somehow the right inputs have to be provided later. And if we can't do it, maybe a grandparent or even an uncle can. Children don't need to be perfectly attended every day. After all, every parent has limited abilities, and this is a difficult world. But, he says, in the end, we can't imagine that these things will just happen. We have to make them happen. 
I'll have a link to this essay by Paul Rosenberg in today's show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Take a moment to thank the sponsors who helped to make this show possible because, really, they they help me keep the wolf away from my door while at the same time it, it enables me to find the best information that I can pass on on a daily basis. I don't know how big my audience is. I honestly don't care how big my audience is. I know there are people who are looking for truth. And the fact that you are listening indicates you're very likely one of them. So when you get the chance to show some love to my sponsors, like SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, you can uh, drop them a note, send them an email. There's, you know, there's an easy way to contact them. Click on the link that I provide in my show notes. That's one way to do it. You could also, if, if you live in southern Utah, this is great. You can just stop by 779 South Bluff Street and drop into their shop and say hi. Now, maybe you're already into sewing or embroidery or uh, long-arm quilting. If you're into any of those pursuits, of course, you will find that this is, this is the greatest toy store you've ever seen in your life. With all the, all the supplies, training, maintenance, and service for the machines that you already have. But they're also just great people. Teresa and Eric Alsop are among the finest human beings on the face of the earth. And if, if you or someone you know dabbles in sewing or is deeply committed to it, this is the place where I would send you. This is the place I would recommend above all others. Do appreciate them being sponsors. So, hypothetically, just purely hypothetically, if, if you knew that hard times were approaching, would it not be wise to know who your truest friends are? And maybe that makes you wonder, well, what are, what are we talking about? Like a Red Dawn scenario? What, are, what exactly is this? I don't, I don't know that I'm necessarily suggesting something that extreme, but let's just say the last couple of years have taught us a lot about the people around us. For instance, if you've been uninvited from family gatherings, well, we would have you over, but it's pretty clear that you're not going to take the jab, and therefore, you know, we just can't be around you. Okay? It happens. I want to share with you, this is an article from uh, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, who's an MD. This is from uh, his uh, Substack. A letter of support from a UCLA professor. And the subtitle here is, You Learn Who Your Friends Are When You Go Through Difficult Times. Now, Dr. Cariotti says, it's been instructive to see which colleagues from the University of California have or have not reached out to support or encourage me since I was fired. This, you need to know this about him. He was, uh, he was fired because of his refusal to get the vaccine. Not uncommon. I mean, gee, well, we've got a pandemic going on. We need everybody to get the vaccine. We need everyone, we need all hands on deck, except you. You didn't get the vaccine, you're fired. Yeah, if it was a real pandemic, I don't think that would have happened. Nonetheless, he was let go. And he says, some old friends have disappointed, <clears throat> while others have surprised me, including some new friends I had not previously known while at the university. But he says, recently a professor, professor of English at UCLA sent this unsolicited letter to University of California Irvine's chancellor. And he says, I'm publishing his extraordinary letter here with his permission. Dear Chancellor Gilman, I'm reaching out to you as a member of the academic community of which you are a leader. I'm sure you've already received letters on behalf of Dr. Aaron Cariotti, 
for, from those who knew him in person or worked with him at the University of California, Irvine. Although I have neither worked with nor met Dr. Cariotti, I have profited tremendously not only from his academic work on bioethics, but also from his current public-facing writings on informed consent and biosurveillance. And I will be teaching one of his essays in the fall. But I'm not writing to defend Dr. Cariotti's scholarship or the challenges that it offers to my own thinking about matters of life and death, and more generally about the intersection of theory and practice. Rather, I am writing to speak for the public intellectual who quite literally practiced the bioethics that he had been teaching his students at our university for over 14 years, until one Friday he was fired. I can hardly state the fact that Dr. Cariotti has impacted my own pedagogy in ways that few other teachers have. Like the legendary Socrates, whose philosophy I teach, or the Brazilian educator Paulo Freire, whose pedagogy of the oppressed informs my own, Dr. Cariotti is the rare teacher who dared to exhibit the courage of informed conviction outside of the classroom. Despite his firing, he continues to represent and inspire many others at our university who found themselves to be passive objects of communication rather than active subjects in communication on matters related to COVID protocols. Dr. Cariotti not, not merely raised questions about vaccine-induced immunity and informed consent, but went so far as to challenge the university's sweeping COVID-19 vaccine mandate that he, among other academics, had grave concerns about for both medical and ethical reasons. I'm not claiming that we should all agree with his position. Far from it. I have followed the town hall talk that you hosted on May 19th, 2021, on the question of COVID vaccines, and do understand the basis of your own stated positions on the matter. My point is less about embracing the rationale for a particularly ethically and medically informed critique of the university's COVID-19 policies than about engaging such a critique and allowing him a fair hearing especially given that more and more scientists are now raising questions similar to those that he raised nearly a year ago. In my experience as an academic at UCLA and at my former universities, Yale and Fordham, scholars and students alike are not just allowed, but also actively encouraged to discuss the institutional policies and even challenge the administration about the ideas that inform them. He says, for the record, I continue to support and speak up for LGBTQ students as they all too often face institutional discrimination. He says, as I'm sure you know, challenging official positions and policies, no matter how well-intentioned, is integral to the process of mutual learning and understanding. A view that University of California, Irvine, states far more eloquently on its own website, true progress is made when different perspectives come together to advance our understanding of the world around us. Now, he says, the summary firing of Dr. Cariotti, a full professor in the School of Medicine, has shaken me to the very core, not just me, but those who care deeply for our university's commitment to academic freedom and the spirit of inquiry. I could not have imagined that any fellow faculty member, let alone one who has won several awards for excellence in teaching, could suddenly use his, lose his job after years of outstanding service to our university. Since his dismissal, I have felt the loss acutely in a manner not unlike grief, but a grief that refuses to abate, and that in some ineffable way has led to a deeper reflection on our university's claims to due process and intellectual dissent. As a recently tenured professor of English at UCLA, I've had the honor to serve on the executive and personnel committees. I've had the privilege to encounter sharp differences in judgment on matters that reasonable people can indeed disagree about. 
But no matter what difficult decisions we reached, those whom we judged and found wanting always had the opportunity to question our conclusions and at the very least receive a hearing. In short, dialogue and discussion were the means by which differences, even irreconcilable ones, were addressed and negotiated, not dismissed and suppressed. I regret to say that Dr. Cariotti's firing strikes me as stemming from swift retaliation rather than calm reflection. And while this is my personal view, it does impact our profession and undermines the collective vision of our university as a place where we can come together as a community of scholars willing to engage rather than expel dissent and just as significantly willing to debate rather than dismiss dissenting academics. With both sadness and hope, I write to add my voice to appeal Dr. Cariotti's termination. I do so not just for the ways in which his scholarship continues to challenge my own thinking, but also for the above far but also for the far-reaching implications it will have for our academic profession and indeed for teachers and scholars in a large public university system such as ours. Please do not hesitate to contact me if you have any questions. Sincerely, Arvind Thomas, PhD, Associate Professor of English, Medieval Studies, Department of English, UCLA. Now, these guys are not friends, but he still reaches out to defend someone. He doesn't even know him. And it sounds like, you know, he may or may not even agree with him entirely. But then again, this is the mark of a principled person. If you see someone, even someone who you don't necessarily agree with, with their free speech being abridged or otherwise, you know, curtailed, would you have the kind of consistency in your principles to stand up for them even though you don't like what they say? If the answer is, well, it depends, or I don't know, or heck no, I wouldn't stand up for him, you got to do some work on your principles. Now, Dr. Cariotti says, however far the institutional corruption at our universities has progressed, he says, I am nevertheless so grateful there are still many good people like Professor Thomas in academia. And he says, our students deserve no less. I do miss working with colleagues like him who are still dedicated to the highest ideals at the university. So I'll have a link to this in the show notes, but I want you to to just consider this. If you reread this essay or if you share it with somebody, take it outside of the academic circles. Take it into whatever circles of influence in which you operate. Would you be willing to stand up for another person? Even if it meant that you might uh, be tainted with this guilt by association that seems so common these days? I know it's something I'm going to be working on as well. So, good luck with it all. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who are seriously interested in knowing the truth. Even if sometimes that truth can be ugly, distasteful, or even painful. Better to know what's going on and know what our options are than to simply sit back And be swaddled in comfortable lies that ultimately are leading us into a place we really don't want to be. Enslavement or worse. 
So welcome. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to encourage you to think clearly and independently. And I've got some great sponsors who help make this possible on a daily basis. They include HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also GovernYourCrypto.com. All right, I'm going to dive right in. I just want to, I want to, I don't talk a lot about politics, but this is one that uh, has really caught my attention. And this stems from some of the discussion about the Hunter Biden laptop. It turns out now that there are some media outlets, New York Times especially, saying, okay, so it turns out the emails uh, were true. Some pretty damning stuff found on Hunter Biden's laptop. And not just the the salacious, you know, uh, you know, homemade porn stuff that he he filmed but uh, a lot of the emails that seem to link he and his father joe biden uh, you may know him as president biden uh to wielding influence for personal family gain and this is pretty important stuff and it could get very interesting because it appears very much that uh, biden's handlers are getting ready to kick him and kamala to the curb Got an article here from Roger Kimball. This is from AmericanGreatness.com. And he says, I sense a disturbance in the force. In fact, he says, I've been feeling the tremors for a while. Back in January, I wrote a column for American Greatness called The Coming Dethronement of Joe Biden. In it, I noted that Biden's appalling performance as president would sooner or later, and probably sooner, given the ostentatious nature of his multifaceted failure, lead to his removal as president. Now, he says, I should have added that it wasn't Biden's performance, per se, that would lead to his downfall. The problem, rather, was the way his performance was undermining his, and therefore his minders and puppet masters, political power. As Saul Alinsky, the community organizer to the stars, noted, the issue is never the issue. Accordingly, the people who put Joe Biden in power, I cannot name them, but I know they are the same people who keep him in power, They don't care about inflation, rising gas and food prices, COVID lockdowns or mask mandates, the porousness of our southern border, the threat of war with Russia, or the myriad other issues that worry ordinary voters. In fact, Roger Kimball says, I'm quite certain that the word voters brings a vaguely contemptuous smile to their face, to their faces, rather. They are not troubled by the suffering of people. Indeed, they approve of a certain amount of suffering. Suffering produces dependency. And dependency, in turn, is like an insurance policy for those who cater to it, the bureaucrats who fill the troughs that feed the populace. Now, the point, of course, was never to end the dependency, but to manage in such a way as to perpetuate and expand it. Joe Biden is an an errand boy, a figurehead in the metabolism of this great, not to say great society, act of political legerdemain. Now, he says, back in January... I compared the conundrum that Joe Biden presented to the committee that keeps him in power with the conundrum that Richard Nixon presented to the elites of his day. Nixon was hated by all the beautiful people of his day. But before he could be disposed of, the elites had to address the problem of Spiru Agnew, who in his own way was nearly as preposterous as Kamala Harris. Fortunately for the anti-Nixon forces, Agnew was also corrupt in a pedestrian, easy-to-demonstrate sort of way. So all of the forces of light and virtue had to do was produce evidence of his glomming on to paper bags full of pelf in exchange for favors rendered, and presto, presto, rather, Agnew was history. But Kamala Harris is more of a problem. 
She's at least as appallingly incompetent as her boss and no less challenged rhetorically as her alarming performance in Poland and Romania a week or two back demonstrated. In fact, let me hit pause for just a moment on the article and let me just share with you a quick example of what that, uh, that kind of uh, rhetorical challenge means. Check out this little uh, thought from, from yesterday. The governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. Wow. I I wish you would have said more about the significance of the passage of time, don't you? It seems like she, she missed a great opportunity there. All right. Sarcasm off. This is this is consistent, though. I mean, this you can find clip after clip after clip of word salad produced by Kamala that uh, that shows she's she's not a very desirable replacement. Even Joe Biden, with all of his faults, um, shines as a as a you know great star of public speaking compared to her. But the point here that Roger Kimball is making is that Harris will not be as easy to shift as Spiro Agnew was. Now, he says, I've heard nothing about actual bribery or acting as the uh, warm bun for Willie Brown's bratwurst. That may be in dubious taste, but it's not actionable. But Biden's and Harris's polls continue to crater with 60 percent of respondents disapproving of the job that Biden is doing, 50 percent strongly disapproving. It's the worst showing yet. And many commentators are rubbing salt into the wound by stressing the adverb, we've been traveling down this road for months, they say, and so far every worst yet turns out to be tomorrow's hold my beer moment. Roger Kimball says the last several days have been full of wonder at the New York Times admission that, guess what? Hunter Biden's laptop from hell was not, as Joe Biden claimed, Russian disinformation. Nope. Everything that Donald Trump said to Leslie Stahl about it was true. Everything the New York Post said about it was true. Twitter and the rest of the regime media produced a damnatio memori on the Post and anyone who dared publicize the scurrilous story. The poor computer repair chap who found and publicized the dirt, political as well as sexual, on Hunter's laptop was hounded and driven into bankruptcy. Remember Jonah, Bo- remember Jonah Goldberg on that poor fellow? I do. Wait, you believe the computer repair shop story? Like at face value? Well, the truth was there, staring everyone in the face. Remember Tony Bobulinski? He's the former Navy officer and businessman who was set to start a financial company with Hunter and Jim Biden, Joe's brother. And Roger Kimball says, as I noted at the time, just before the 2020 election, Bobulinski demonstrated with copious contemporary documentation the various Chinese entities, all of whom, like all things Chinese, are ultimately answerable to the party, have invested heavily in the Bidens via various business enterprises of Joe's son, Hunter. We're talking tens of millions of dollars, end quote. Now, Roger Kimball asks, why would the Chinese do this? Out of some misplaced humanitarian instinct? No, they did it in order to capitalize on the Biden name. At the time, remember, Joe was vice president of the United States. That was all that Hunter had to offer. But it was the Chinese wagered quite a lot. Many thought that Joe Biden might be president, and it turns out they were right. In short, influence peddling of the grossest and most spectacular kind. 
And as he said then, when influence is peddled, obligations are incurred. When obligations are incurred, favors can be expected. When the favors are owed directly or indirectly to the Chinese Communist Party, you want to be sure that the people in debt are not, you know, presiding over the government of the United States of America. Now, all that information from Bobulinski came from an interview with Tucker Carlson. It was about the only place you could find his name. Searches for him on CNN turned up zilch. Search not found. We're talking about a week or two before the election. Everything not friendly to Biden was memory hold. Hunter's laptop, of course, but also the evidence that Bobulinski produced showed that contrary to Joe Biden's direct testimony, Joe did talk to Hunter about his business. In one communication, equity stakes for the new company are spelled out. 10% is to be held by H, that's Hunter, for the big guy, my chairman, i.e. Joe Biden. Roger Kimball says, that brings me back to the disturbance in the force with, the, with which I began. Why do you suppose that the New York Times has decided finally, at this late date, <clears throat> to acknowledge that the story that the New York Post broke about Hunter's laptop was true? The Times, like the rest of the fake news establishment, like virtually all of social media, buried the story, screaming loudly that, of course, it wasn't true. Of course, it was Russian disinformation, mediated mediated somehow by that consummate Putin puppet, Donald Trump. Fifty-one intelligence experts, remember, signed an open letter denouncing the story and pronouncing anathema upon Donald Trump. Presented with evidence that they were wrong, every one of that disgusting crew, John Brennan, James Clapper, and the rest of the anti-Trump deep state coven, refused to apologize. Okay, we're going to come back to Roger Kimball's article here in just a few moments, but the big question is, why now? And I think the logical conclusion is because they're getting ready to kick poor Joe Biden to the curb. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Hey, before I go on with this article, let me first uh, start by giving a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I don't know if you're getting the picture, but man, food storage is more important than ever. And and for those who are getting started, it can seem overwhelming. Oh my gosh, how am I going to put away enough food to really feel like I'm making a difference? Consistency is the key. And if you need to start small, start small. I would recommend click on the link I provide in my in my sponsor section of my show notes at the com. Go to lifesavingfood.com and just take a look at some of the different packages, big and small, that you can choose from. Once you get a start, it's very encouraging to see that supply start to build and grow as you consistently add to it. So please, for the sake of uh, of the uncertain tomorrow, do what you can to shore up one of the most important needs that you and your family have. That is having good, shelf-stable food, something you can buy, store in a safe place for up to 25 years and not have to worry about it going bad. It's probably one of the best investments you can make since you know you're going to be eating some meals over those 25 years. Should times of need arise, you know you got something to fall back on. All right, that said... Let's get back to this article from Roger Kimball about how Biden's handlers are preparing to eject him and Kamala. He says, many people seem to think that the reason that the story of Hunter's laptop, which is just as much about Joe Biden's perfidy as it is about Hunter's perversion, 
has emerged now is because it can no longer do any serious damage. The election's over. Biden won, or at least he was declared the winner, which is not quite the same thing, although it does mean that he gets to live at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But Roger Kimball says, I wonder if there isn't something else going on. The news is full, not only of stories about the New York Times fessing up, sort of, about the contents of Hunter's laptop, but also stories about how Hunter is likely to be indicted for tax fraud. Now, in one sense, that's not news. He says, I wrote about it at the end of 2020 when Hunter announced Sato Vachi that he'd been informed he was being investigated by the tax authorities. But in another sense, I suspect that news like the revelation from the New York Times that, what do you know, all the stuff about Hunter's laptop was on the level, like Joe Biden's bizarre suggestion a couple of days ago that everybody knows somebody who's taken nude pictures of some lover and used them to blackmail the person. All that has a different valence now that Biden administration is is seriously underwater and there are no lifelines in evidence. So the issue is never the issue. And he says, I suspect that Joe Biden is being prepped for ejection. Now, exactly how it will happen, I don't yet know. But he's on the threshold, or possibly he's even passed the threshold where he could appear to govern. His minders understand this. They must be the ones to replace him. Otherwise, they risk themselves being replaced, which would be intolerable. So Roger Kimball says, I'm not entirely clear on how the defenestration will take place. Obviously, Kamala will have to be dealt with first, and she will be. Look for some ground-softening stories such as the Times just served up about the laptop, because they won't be long in coming. Very interesting, if true. And again, something to keep an eye on, but don't allow yourself to marinate too much in politics. After all, it really isn't the the big deal that sometimes we make it out to be, or at least it shouldn't be the big influence that we make it out to be. All right, I'm going to shift topics here. I want to talk about uh, what's happening. I, I had an experience last night. I treated myself to a burger, fries, and a drink. And it used to be, well, you know, burger, fries, and drink, a little combo meal, yeah. You know, what's it going to set me back? Five, six bucks or something? For the record, it was Carl's Jr. You know, just letting you know. Twelve dollars. Twelve bucks for a hamburger, fries, and a drink. I mean, I'm paying attention to inflation, but even I was like, oh, man, that's like, that's the kind of sticker shock I feel at the gas tank. Well, as far as the problem of inflation goes, Ron Paul has a very simple solution as well as an object lesson. He says, end the Fed and you'll get more Doritos. Here's what he means. He says the U.S. government's consumer price index indicates prices have increased 7.9% in the last year. And while this statistic shows the highest rate of increase in 40 years, it still understates the amount prices have increased, in part because the statistic is manipulated to minimize reported price increases. So a stealth form of inflation is shrinkflation. Shrinkflation occurs when businesses reduce the size of a product so its price can stay the same. For example, Frito-Lay recently began putting fewer chips in a bag of Doritos, reducing the weight of a bag about 5% from 9.75 ounces to 9.25 ounces in the process. Of course, charging the same for less is still a type of price increase. This week, the Federal Reserve increased the interest rate by by 0.25%. This increase, it is said is a step in combating inflation. The Fed also announced that it plans to raise rates six more times this year. However, even if the Fed follows through on this plan, rates will only increase from near zero to around 1.9%. So this is unlikely to effectively combat inflation. 
The Fed's also indicated a commitment to reducing its almost $9 trillion balance sheet. Although its official statement did not specify details such as when the Federal Reserve would start reducing holdings. Ron Paul says the Federal Reserve is facing a dilemma of its own making. Continuing to keep rates low will cause a dollar crisis. A dollar crisis can then lead to a major economic meltdown worse than the Great Depression. However, if the Fed were to increase rates to anything close to where they would be in a free market, that would dramatically increase the federal government's debt payments burden. The only reason Congress's reckless spending and the Fed's reckless monetary policy have not yet caused a major economic crisis is the dollar's world reserve currency status. One of the pillars of the dollar status, though, is the use of the dollar in the international oil market. The petrodollar, though, may soon be replaced. Saudi Arabia is considering selling some oil for Chinese yuan instead of U.S. dollars. India is considering using Russian rubles and Indian rupees instead of U.S. dollars in a trade with Russia. In trade with Russia, rather, including for the purchase of Russian oil, because that'll help them get around U.S. sanctions. Concerns about the stability of the U.S. economy combined with increasing resentment of our foreign policy will cause other countries to abandon the dollar. Now, Ron Paul says economic instability can lead to political instability, violence, and an increase in support for authoritarian movements. A way to avoid this is for those of us who know the truth to spread the ideas of liberty. When a critical mass of people demands fiscal responsibility and constitutionally limited government, the politicians will comply. And so he says to put an end to the welfare warfare state, Congress can drastically reduce the military budget, end all corporate welfare, and shut down all unconstitutional cabinet departments. The savings can be used to pay down debt and to support those truly dependent on government programs while responsibly, while responsibly providing for assistance returns to local institutions and private charities. Now, he says Congress should also restore a sound monetary policy by auditing and then ending the Fed, as well as by repealing both legal tender laws and capital gains taxes on precious metals and, metals and cryptocurrencies. Ending the era of the welfare, warfare state and fiat currency can lead to a transition to a new era of liberty, peace and prosperity and full bags of Doritos. Now, I get it. Not everybody is into monetary policy, right? Not everybody understands the difference between fiat currency and sound money. And it's not something you're going to likely learn in one quick, you know, easy lesson. Well, let's just sit down here and I'll explain it to you in five minutes over lunch. And then, you know, you'll walk away just as well armed as, as Ron Paul is. If this is something you really want to understand, you're going to have to be willing to pay the price to understand it. But it's something that uh, I, I think would, would behoove each one of us who, who at least feels like we have a stake in the matter. If we want to be part of the solution, we've got to be able to get our minds around this. So if, if you think free money from the government is a great idea, I know a lot of people feel that way. Hey, I like to get checks with my name on them too. But when the government is handing out tons and tons of free money, it's putting lots of dollars into circulation chasing the same amount of goods in circulation that was was already there and the purchasing power of every single dollar is watered down accordingly bad news for people on fixed incomes bad news for people sitting there with savings in the bank might want to proceed with caution this 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I'm going to go into some uncomfortable territory here. I just want to give you some advance notice because I, I don't want to spread fear. I really don't want to get people in a, in a scary state of mind. But there's a couple of hard truths that I really think we need to focus on. And this, look, I, I don't talk much about the political stuff because that almost always seems to be fear-mongering, scary, melodrama. Oh, can you believe what's going on? Whatever's dominating the mainstream news cycle at any given time is is typically something that uh, that is not reflective of where where the real important issues are. It's almost always something shiny and a little bit scary to get our attention and to keep us transfixed on that while more dangerous things are happening just out of view. So when I talk about things like potential food shortages as well as the possibility of food rationing, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just I'm trying to be a voice of warning and I'm trying to be a responsible voice of warning to to give advance notice or is the best advance notice I can to the people who are trying to pay attention and trying to mitigate those risks. I mean it's it, it's a really interesting time and with with all the focus on well do you have some blue and yellow on are you supportive enough of Ukraine? That's great. But if you're not thinking about some of the bigger implications of the conflict going on in Ukraine and what it portends for the world's food supply, it might be time to, to broaden your perspective or take a couple of steps to the side and, and, and just see if maybe you have a little bit better vantage point to better appreciate the situation. I'm looking at an article right now from Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. The stagflation trap will lead to universal basic income and food rationing. Brandon Smith calls it pretty straight here. He says this past week during a conference discussing Biden's Build Back Better scheme, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was confronted with questions on skyrocketing inflation. After referring to higher gas prices as the Putin tax, she went on to offer perhaps the dumbest or most insidious denial on the causes for inflation that I've ever heard. She stated, quote, When we're having this discussion, it's important to dispel some of those who say, well, it's the government spending. No, it isn't. The government spending is doing the exact reverse, reducing the national debt. It is not inflationary. Now, Brandon Smith says, anyone with a basic understanding of economics and how central banks operate must have felt their brains explode when they heard this. He goes, I know I did. But before I get into the numerous reasons why this claim is completely false in every way, I want to give a warning. It's very easy in this situation to assume that Pelosi and even Biden are making these arguments because they're too stupid to grasp the fundamentals of debt creation, money velocity, and fiat. That said, he says, never mistake evil for mere ignorance. All higher-level representatives of the White House are briefed by economic experts, by which he means spin doctors, well before they answer any questions on inflation. And the things they say have been carefully scripted. Now, it's possible Pelosi mixed up her lies a little bit, but the narrative the establishment is trying to promote is well-planned. Asserting that money creation is a counterbalance to inflation instead of the cause is not brilliant, but it's not designed to convince many people, only to create confusion. And let's not forget, 
that only last year, these same people were telling the public that inflation was purely transitory and there was nothing to worry about. Now they're trying to cover their tracks and the culpability of the Federal Reserve. He says, I believe the goal here is to simply stall for time until the stagflationary collapse unfolds. They have the perfect scapegoat as they launch an economic war with Russia and likely China in the near term. And the effects of this war will hurt the U.S. and Europe far more than many realize. So to quickly break down Pelosi's bizarre statement, Brandon Smith says, I'm going to make a couple of root observations. First, paying down the national debt has nothing to do with reducing inflation. Even if you could somehow gather enough assets to pay off the national debt without creating new dollars from thin air, the current inflationary problems would still persist. There would still be the matter of the tens of trillions of dollars already fabricated and floating around the global economy. Inflation is directly related to money supply and money velocity. The national debt is secondary to the issue. Second, he says we need to ask the most obvious question. If government spending reduces the national debt by paying it down, then why hasn't the national debt gone down? The Fed and the U.S. government created over $6 trillion in fiat money in 2020 alone, and the national debt only went higher. In fact, he says the explosion of the national debt correlates directly to the amount of dollars created by the Fed to supply various stimulus policies and bailouts over the years. The national debt in 2008 at the onset of the credit crash was around $10 trillion. It took hundreds of years to reach that level. In the span of only 14 years, Fed money creation, uh, the debt has now tripled to over $30 trillion. So he says, I'll say it again. Government spending and Fed Fed stimulus has tripled the size of our national debt in less than 14 years. And of course, inflation has spiked as the amount of dollars injected into the global system causes the buying power of our currency to decline dramatically. More fiat dollars equals less buying power. This is reality. Also, using Russia as a scapegoat doesn't hold up on the logic meter. The assertion by Pelosi, Biden, and many establishment leftists has been that blocking Russian oil to the U.S. is leading to inflation in multiple sectors of the economy, but it's necessary to stop Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So one might assume that we use a lot of Russian oil, but we don't. Russian crude oil only makes up 3% of U.S. imports. Therefore, there is no way that sanctions on Russian oil are the cause of rising prices. Nor do these sanctions have any effect on the Kremlin. Inflation was hitting 40-year highs back in December of last year. That's well before the war in Ukraine. In fact, news on the Fed's interest rate hikes moves oil markets far more than news on Ukraine. So to summarize, he says, I have a special message for Nancy Pelosi. Please, do us a favor and shut up, you blood-sucking crone. The American people are smarter than you and your propaganda script is full of holes. Now, moving on to more important issues. He says this narrative is not only about protecting the Biden administration, but it's also about protecting the Federal Reserve. As former Fed chairman Alan Greenspan once openly admitted, the central bank answers to no one. And that includes government officials. Isn't that something? Many theorize it's actually the central banks and international banks that make the majority of policy decisions for government. And politicians have very little say in matters. Brandon Smith says, I'm inclined to agree that given the number of banking elites and global council on foreign relations members that seem to permeate every single presidential cabinet, this includes uh, Trump's uh, cabinet as much as Biden's. 
But he says, Biden's an empty shell of a man, barely able to maintain a semblance of sanity. Who do you think really runs the country? And he says, I've been writing a lot lately about how establishments, elites, and globalists actually benefit greatly from a stagflationary crisis as long as they're able to divert blame to other sources and are not targeted for retribution by the public. One of these benefits includes a cover event for an agenda that the World Economic Forum calls the Great Reset, which is essentially just another name for a new world order. Isn't it marvelous that the government and media hailstorm of COVID fear porn that was bombarding Americans just a few months ago has now suddenly vanished? What happened? Well, the establishment was defeated. That's what happened. In fact, i got to give you a quick aside. I think it was Jordan Schachtel in his uh, dossier substack talked about how that, uh, that winter of severe illness and death apparently only applied to the COVID narrative. <laughs> Sorry, but that's, that's poetic justice. <laughs> With conservatives and moderates in red states in the U.S. and around the nations uh, fighting back against the lockdowns and vaccine passports, the globalists must have realized the battle in the long run was lost and suddenly all talk of passports and medical tyranny is gone. Now, Brandon Smith says, I realize there are some people out there that give the globalists too much credit and still argue the COVID scheme was some kind of success. But he says, these people are wrong. If you want to see what success looks like, go to China, where hundreds of millions are still suffering from lockdowns today, and no one can do anything without an up-to-date vaccine passport and QR code. In China, the vax passports are also used for tracking of the population, as well as an element of their social credit scores. This is what globalists want for all nations, including the U.S., and they didn't get it. Therefore, it's on to the next crisis. Now, he says, the stagflation threat worries me more than any other for a number of reasons, and it's not just because of the potential for extreme poverty. As we all know, the strategy of -of out-of-order chaos is about creating enough desperation within a target population that the people are willing to give up their freedoms in exchange for a semblance of safety and normalcy. But what specific controls would the establishment seek out? Stagflation has the ability to trigger much higher prices in necessities, which simultaneously drags GDP down along with wages, jobs, manufacturing, etc. And there's also the very real threat of government price controls, which would suffocate production and reduce the supply of goods even further. Now, he says we're not quite to this point yet, but the danger is approaching fast. Now, there are two initiatives within the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Agenda that parallel stagflation almost exactly. And Brandon Smith says, I predict we're going to be hearing about them often in the coming year. We're going to come back to those in just a few moments. These are the ones you need to know about and be prepared for. And it can be done, but let's not pretend it's going to be fun or it's going to be easy. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by HSLAmmo.com. Please click the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I want you to uh, get better acquainted with HSL Ammo, particularly to my listeners in southern Utah. Great place to get stocked up. It's a great store of value, by the way. I mean, we talk about precious metals. Do you have silver? Do you have gold? I would say uh, people who have lead, copper, and brass are probably doing well, too. And it's not because, boy, we're going to be, you know, fighting in the streets for our lives, but simply ammo is, uh, 
It's a divisible commodity. It holds its value. It stores almost indefinitely. And uh, it's something that people are looking for. And if you haven't noticed, along with everything else, the the prices have, have gone up and up and up. But this is a particularly desirable commodity. All right, back to Brandon Smith's article about how the stagflation trap will lead to universal basic income and food rationing. These are the two initiatives within the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Agenda that we're likely to be hearing about more in the coming year. So pay close attention for it. He says the first initiative is the concept of the universal basic income. Now, we heard a lot about this a few years ago, but the idea didn't stick too well with the American public. The truth, however, is that we already had UBI for a time in the form of COVID stimulus checks. This helicopter money was funded by over $6 trillion in central bank fiat created from nothing and then directly injected into citizen accounts. Now, it was barely enough for people to live on by itself, but in conjunction with other welfare programs and unemployment checks, millions of people were living the easy life at home for well over a year. The money was so easy that the policy actually triggered a national labor shortage. Now, this small taste of UBI may have given people the wrong impression about such stimulus programs. After the COVID programs, the public might be led to believe that universal basic income would result in a carefree life with enough money to go around. By themselves, without the benefit of other welfare programs, COVID checks would not have been enough to keep people housed and fed. The standard of living for the average person would have to fall dramatically for UBI to work at all. Enter stagflation. With economic decline crushing our living standards, it would be easier or it could be easier for the establishment to lure the public into universal basic income. Along with communist-style price controls across the board and a reduced population due to starvation and poverty, the public would be able to survive, but barely. There would no longer be such a thing as personal wealth, only the scraps that governments and bankers are willing to throw people. On top of that, resistance to authoritarianism would be nearly impossible. Once the government takes on the role of mommy and daddy and the only source of, be the only source of food and housing for the citizenry, they're less likely to stand up against any abuse the establishment wants to dish out. So UBI is a candy-coated trap which breeds dependency in a population. Free money is an addictive drug, and America just had a big taste during the pandemic. This leads us into the second World Economic Great Reset World Economic Forum Great Reset program which is the concept of the shared economy. The globalists think that you should own nothing, have no privacy and be happy about it. The initial danger here involves rationing. A government cannot institute UBI measures during a stagflationary crisis without also instituting price controls. Because otherwise, the fiat stimulus used to provide the UBI checks would only create more inflation in prices. If UBI is meant to offset inflation, but it creates more inflation, well, then universal basic income becomes useless. This is another little fact that people like Pelosi will try to gloss over when they claim that money printing helps fight inflation. Now, Brandon Smith says when price controls are implemented... Manufacturing will implode further because price controls mean producers of necessities will not be able to make much of a profit or they'll make no profit at all. There will be no incentive to produce among the people that actually know how to produce. And these people are not easy to replace. The supply of goods will not be able to meet demand. Naturally, the government will take the opportunity to limit the amount of goods any single person or family is allowed to purchase or stockpile through rationing cards. Now, keep in mind, these kinds of measures have been used in the past, usually during wartime or under communist regimes. 
But in this case, the rationing will be digital and permanent, and it will be designed to further control food and other resources as means to prevent rebellion by the public. If you can't store more than a week's worth of necessities at any given time, then your ability to defy the government is non-existent unless you know how to live off the land or have access to black markets. All they have to do is cut off your monthly UBI checks and ration account and watch you starve. Now, Brandon Smith says, I will cover solutions to these problems in an article coming soon. I think it's important that people within the liberty movement and outside the liberty movement start thinking about the scale of crisis that we're facing. It's not just about economic disaster and adapting to the loss of supply chains and stable currencies. It's not just about survival. It's also about fighting back against the inevitable government response to the crisis. They will try to take advantage of people's pain and use it to lure people into slavery. This cannot be allowed to happen. Now, I get it. You may need a little breath of fresh air like, holy cow, that's that's a lot to consider. But this is one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about we've got to be prepared to stand on our own two feet. Now, having said that, I want to end on a, on a hopeful note. As overwhelming as these things may appear, one thing we cannot allow ourselves to forget is that we do not walk alone. In fact, I want to share with you an article from Annie Holmquist. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. She says, back when the COVID pandemic was young and no one knew what to think about it, I sat in my home listening to a SoundCloud stream of various choral recordings while, it, while I worked. One of the selections was a soothing new setting of an old Irish blessing which runs as follows. May you see God's light on the path ahead when the road you walk is dark. May you always hear, even in your hour of sorrow, the gentle singing of the lark. When times are hard, may hardness never turn your heart to stone. May you always remember when the shadows fall, you do not walk alone. She says, I've continued to listen to this song at various times since those dark days, but recently, she says, I took a closer look at the words and began pondering their significance for today. We live in dark times, still, in which sorrows abound. And because of that, many of us allow our hearts to harden rather than push through the sorrows and choose joy instead. And she says, as I've thought about it, I realize that one of the reasons why we struggle through hard times is that we've ignored the final line of the blessing above. We think and act as though we walk alone. Now, the idea of a loneliness epidemic is tossed around regularly and was raised most recently by Dr. Dave Chokshi, Chokshi rather, Commissioner of the New York City's Department of Health. Studies show almost 60% of the city's residents felt lonely, at, felt lonely some of the time or often, while nearly 70% felt socially isolated in the prior four weeks. This is what the commissioner wrote in a recent CNBC op-ed. Only a third of the respondents said they could count on someone for emotional support. Now, Annie Holmquist says, We can certainly blame the pandemic for part of this loneliness in New York and everywhere else, but does the pandemic really deserve all the blame? Because the fact is many Americans have made their loneliness worse through the rejection of family and community. She says, think about it. Instead of choosing a solid and lasting marital relationship early in life, many young people chose serial shack-ups or divorces as their parents did before them, and they gradually find themselves old and alone. Couples who choose marriage often push child-rearing off into the distant future because children are an inconvenience to career advancement and to the self-indulgent pursuit of fun. These couples sometimes realize too late that a few little pairs of feet running around would make life more enjoyable. Other people purposely alienate themselves from community. 
being neighborly to those who live over the back fence is too much work, the thinking goes. And joining a church, why, that would mean commitment, both time-wise and monetarily, and that can get uncomfortable, especially for those who don't want to bring God into the equation. She says this tendency toward individualism and the shunning of roots and community come when social conditions become more equal. Something French political scientist Alexis de Tocqueville noted in his mid-19th century work, Democracy in America. It is then that people owe, to, owe nothing to any man, and they acquire the habit of always considering themselves as standing alone. Now, This mentality can have its benefits, but it also serves to separate individuals from the very moorings they need to maintain connection and stability in life. Tocqueville said, Thus not only does democracy make every man forget his ancestors, but it hides his descendants and separates his contemporaries from him. It throws him back forever upon himself alone and threatens in the end to confine him entirely within the solitude of his own heart. End quote. Annie Holmquist says, We live in times where equality has achieved a prominence and importance never before seen in this country. So, judging by Tocqueville's words, it really shouldn't surprise us that we have so many lonely, lost, and disconnected individuals in our society. And that's a sad situation, but it's not one that can't be remedied. She says, The more we immerse ourselves in community, whether finding a church and getting involved or sharing kindness and conversation with those at work or in our neighborhoods, the less we will be alone. But she says the best way to ensure we are not alone, as the little Irish poem above implies, is to make sure that we are walking through life with God. Being on good terms with Him not only gives us constant companionship with the divine, but it also opens the door for greater connection with other humans who walk the same path in following Him, ensuring that we truly do not walk alone. I don't care if you're religious or not. I think that is solid advice. This is The Brian Hyde Show.